Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And I am pleased to announce that um, I just became a father again. Enoch Gerard came into the world uh, this past Tuesday. So, um, was that two days ago? Three days ago? Today's Thursday. But time has kind of <clears throat> entered a time warp a little bit where... Uh, tired and recovering and such um, but very happy to see our little one and uh, one of the consequences of having a very young baby is that uh, my wife doesn't sleep much through the night and so I usually try and wake up uh, fairly early and take him so that she can sleep at least uh, a few hours in the early morning and this lends itself well to podcasting as long as um, as he keeps sleeping adorably as he is now so, um, oh, just give me a little smile, anybody. Um, also lends my lends us to podcasts where my voice is very soft and mellow <laughs> as I try not to wake him. So, that being said, let's um, do some heavy lifting in philosophy uh, with this little child on my lap. Um, after... Uh, previous podcast, I kind of talked about how I'm leaving behind a, um, something that has been quite helpful to me, uh, presuppositional apologetics, um, and kind of a rough and ready way of seeing philosophy. Yes, it's maybe not um, something you could write journal articles about or like um, really shock the or, or move the academic community of, of philosophers with presuppositional apologetics. It's not really taken seriously outside Christianity, honestly, although people know about it. Um, but it's something that gave me a lot of stability and um, helped me to understand the world, uh, and especially the world of thought and philosophy. And as much as, and I hope this came across, as much as I feel like I need to move past it as I'm studying philosophy, I do feel like it's a it's a helpful um, place to be. It's a really helpful tool uh, for Christians. And um, I don't at all mean to say that it's, it's wrong or it's bad. And uh, that maybe lends itself to the question, well, how can something... Um, how can you say you're moving past it if you if it's not wrong? How can it be less useful but still correct? Um, and I would answer that uh, with analogy to the question of um, well, the question that we often orbit around in our household: where do babies come from? Um, and uh, the kids just asked me that the other day, and and the older two are at the age where I tell them. You know very clearly where how things work and um, try my very best not to feel embarrassed about it um, just yeah well um, I'm not gonna say it on the podcast but uh, you know tell them the details about how how it works they're 10 and 8 the oldest um, but when they were younger we said things like um, well you know when the mommy and daddy love each other very much then you know, they they have they can have a baby, or um, they sleep together, or something like that. And those answers aren't incorrect. Uh, they're just not 
as correct as they could be. Uh, there's just a deeper truth um, to that. And so everything I said before about we need a fixed reference point, um, modernism tried to create philosophy without God, which or, or with, with man as the starting point and not God. Um, those are all true. Um, but um, we need to, I need to drill deeper than that to find some deeper answers. And um, kind of the deepest question that we have, it seems to me, is are we going to go with Plato or Aristotle? Um, and uh, not specifically their philosophical system, at least for Plato. Um, there's probably thousands of people that follow in his footsteps that could be called Platonism, Platonists or idealists. Um, but, uh, yeah, let me start again. There's, in all the complexity of philosophy, there's basically two ways of looking at it. And uh, I'm going to be reading from my Wilhelmsen textbook. It's called Man's Knowledge of Reality, an Introduction to Thom Thomistic Epistemology by Frederick D. Wilhelmsen. Um, and he says, well, I can't find the quote uh, here, um, but it's simple enough to memorize. He says, either philosophy starts with ideas or philosophy starts with things. And this is kind of the basic um, difference between Plato and Aristotle. Now, I did a, I did a few podcasts on Plato and Aristotle um, and Socrates, so you can go back into podcasts and listen to those. Um, I'll be honest and say that uh, in those podcasts, I understood Plato a lot better than Aristotle. Um, I'm still growing in my understanding of Aristotle, but I think you'll be able to expect some really good podcasts on Aristotle soon because... Thomas Aquinas is um, is a disciple of Aristotle, and um, uh, and and so and that's what I'm studying right now. Ah, here it is. Okay, page seventeen. Philosophy must, philosophy must seek its point of departure in the mind, or philosophy must seek it in things. We have called these positions critical and non-critical. So Plato said that there's a world of forms out there. Um, there is a place somewhere, and then there's a big debate within Platonism called realism versus anti-realism. There's this big debate, does this place actually exist, where there is a perfect circle, a perfect triangle, um, and where there is perfect justice, and where um, the form of the good is the perfect form, and all other forms are kind of derivative of this. So it's kind of like it's basically like the heaven for Plato um, was this place where everything was perfect in like a mathematical sense. Um, in in it's kind of hard to quickly summarize what Plato meant by that. Um, but the idea that he had was that our souls are from this perfect heavenly place where there is. You know, everything is perfect where there are perfect circles and triangles and and perfect justice and perfect harmony. I guess harmony is maybe what we're looking for when we talk about heaven. 
um, but that we, we fell from there and ended up part of this world of matter. And matter messes everything up. Um, and again, it, there's a big debate about how there's all sorts of uh, different schools of thought within Platonism about how we came to be in this world of matter. Um, Plato himself said it was there was this thing called the demiurge that put us here, but it was something very, that was very unclear within Plato how we ended up down here. Um, but for some reason, we're down here in this world uh, where you know you look at a sunflower and it looks like a circle, and the reason to you it looks like a circle is because you have this memory of a perfect circle. Where do you get this memory? Well, it's from the world of forms. It's from your past life. Um, you have these images within your mind, such as justice and goodness and... Um, um, trying to think what else would be a good form. Um, but certainly the geometric forms as well are, are a good place to start. So squares and triangles. And because we have these imprinted on our mind, we're able to live ethical lives, we're able to live sensical lives in our world, and also able to organize the world around us. So the world outside us is um, makes sense because of the forms that are within us, uh, and we have these forms because um, of our previous existence, um, or for some other reason. Uh, and so then there's other schools of thought that say, well, you know, these, for, these forms are in our mind because they're in God's mind. This is Christian Platonism, um, such as uh, Augustine would have had. Got some podcasts on him. So, truth exists in the mind of God. God made us in his image, and so he put the stamp of truth in our minds. So, one way or another, there's truth in us that organizes the world around us. The second way of looking at things, and we're going to talk more about this in the next podcast, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but it's the idea, and you can call this a scientific idea if you want. I think that's that would probably work. Um, it, the idea is that our minds don't have anything written on them. So this little baby I have in my arms, um, you know, Christians would say that he has original sin, but um, and maybe some instincts. But when it comes to understanding the world, he has nothing. Um, and so how will his understanding of roundness and squareness and goodness come from? Well, that's going to come from sense perception. As his senses impact the world, as the world impacts his senses, I should say, um, those senses send electrical currents up to his brain and... Throughout the course of his life, he's going to get more and more and more and more exposure to the world until finally he starts to understand how the world is. And it's through understanding the world that then he is able to abstract, to um, like distill down all these different you know, sensory perceptions uh, until he can get to a form. And um, Aristotle does believe in forms similar to Plato because you kind of need that in philosophy, that there's certain abstract concepts that make sense of the rest of life, such as circle, such as square, such as perfect justice. If we know, if we can talk about what real justice is, what real goodness is, um, then we can make sense of a state, statement such as that was wrong. You know, if we can't 
make sense of what it means that something is right in an objective sense. We can't make sense of what it means that it's wrong. And if we don't know what a circle is, a real circle, a perfect circle, then we can't make sense of the statement of that is round or that's almost round. So we need these forms. And the way that the forms come for Aristotle is that they come from the world. And as you see enough instances of something, uh, the forms will develop within your mind. So I want to give you just a tiny bit of history here. Um, so Aristotle and Plato, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle lived around 500 years before Christ. I'm not going to get into specific dates, but it's about the time that uh, the Old Testament ended. Um, the Israelites went into captivity and then came back, and then there were the silent years. That's right about the time when Plato and Aristotle lived. Um, Socrates came first, but he didn't write anything. We talk mostly about Plato versus Aristotle. By the time of the New Testament, um, their two schools of thought had created um, dozens of uh, smaller schools of thought. Um, and uh, Socrates himself had a lot of disciples that all created different schools of thought. And they kind of obscured the master teachers to some extent. Um, but Plato was really having the upper hand, I would say, uh, for two reasons. For one thing, it's a simpler concept. Uh, as we're going to talk about, uh, Aristotle is hard to understand. Uh, it gets into a lot of different um, hair-splitting distinctions between certain terms. And uh, it's a steep learning curve. So Plato is just easier to understand. And secondly, because um, an interesting fact of history is that uh, we have um, Plato wrote for the masses as well as for his students. He was a teacher. He created a school, maybe the first school, um, the first real school called the Academy. Um, and he lectured every day for like 40 years or something. But we don't have any of his lectures. What we have is his books that he wrote for the common man or to educate, you know, the aristocracy or the educated people in the city. So they're, they're popular level, they use analogies, they're interesting to read, they're fun to read. Um, and they do challenge you to think, but they're accessible. Aristotle, on the other hand, if he wrote something for the masses, we don't have it. What we have from Aristotle is his textbooks. And so they're like extremely hard to understand. They're very concise. Um, there's not a single word wasted. Um, and so, you know, the academics love it because it's, it's so um, gloriously complete. Plato just leaves so many questions unanswered. Uh, one would hope that during his classes he filled in some of these gaps in his thinking, but uh, Aristotle is very, very clear and concise. And so uh, for that reason, Platonism, um, for the most part in the ancient world, was far more popular. Um, and then there was um, about 100 years after. So uh, Greek thought didn't have a huge impact on the New Testament because people were um, people that wrote the New Testament were Jews. Uh, and so the idea that, um, oh man, I'm going to get so, <laughs> this is supposed to be old Descartes. It's hard for me to talk just a little bit about that history. Um, 
I'll just say that Greek philosophy didn't have a huge impact on the New Testament, um, although Greek thought um, helped Paul think more clearly, and so he had more, you know, he had a, a good, clear, logical form to his thought uh, coming from um, some of his Greek training, uh, as well as Luke had had more uh, Greek training. Um, but uh, about 100 years after Christ, there's a man named Plotinus, actually 150 years after, and um, he brought the schools of, uh, he, he used a lot of Aristotle, especially his categories and his terms, and then he went back and kind of joined that together with Platonism, and he did the two together into something fairly religious, um, that uh, there is a world of the forms, uh, which is perfect being, and then that spills out into mind, and then that spills out into soul, and then the soul is what makes reality. It's all very new age and complicated, but I do have some podcasts on that and a research paper because uh, I studied it. It's very fascinating. Um, but what I, all I'm trying to say is that this this was back to an idealist way of looking at the world. Um, and uh, in the second and third and fourth centuries, um, Neoplatonism really took over the imagination of the Greek population at large and then of Christianity. And so um, Augustine in the fourth century, um, the most important uh, church father you need to know about, um, he was a Neoplatonism Neoplatonist, and uh, this is really what brought him to Christianity. And um, because he studied Neoplatonism and he saw the links of it, and then Neoplatonism helped him answer the big questions he had that were holding him back from Christianity. So he, he got converted to Christianity through studying this non-Christian thought system. And then uh, Augustine really uh, combined Christianity with this Greek thought of Neoplatonism. And um, this is not just me saying this. Everybody agrees with this. In fact, Augustine himself says that um, he's, a, he's a Platonist. He didn't call it Neoplatonism, but um, historians would call it Neoplatonism because Platonism after uh, Plotinus is different than it bef was before. Anyways, so um, Augustine wrote in the 400s, um, tremendously important thinker, tremendously interesting thinker, um, really solidified the concept of original sin, um, solidified uh, the Trinity, although it was well established before that, but he made it more clear. Um, and his writings, which are huge, they would fill a whole shelf uh, of, a of a library, create the foundation for Western thought. So we are in the West, uh, the Eastern Church over in you know Russia and um, and Turkey and uh, in uh, North Africa. That's the Eastern Church. Um, well, North Africa is Coptic. That's a different thing. But um, so for the Western Church, for the Catholic Church, uh, it's built on Augustine, and us Protestants, the Reformation, we're still built on Augustine, and which whether we like it or not, that's where we are. And Augustine was an idealist. He believed through, you know, Plotinus back to Plato that um, the reason we know things is because of um, 
God's mind in us. Uh, we know things because of our mind. So then there was the Dark Ages. Um, Rome fell right towards the end of Augustine's life. He was part of why he was the last really great um, thinker is because Rome fell after him. And so the universities fell. Um, everything fell into disrepair. People didn't have leisure time to study anymore. Um, it fell because of basically a financial collapse as well as moral collapse and other things. But basically got too big to defend its borders. And um, the outside countries just ran in um, from all directions to plunder and to loot. Um, the wealth within the Roman Empire was significantly higher than outside the empire, um, which meant that they had to continually defend their borders. Um, and at a certain point, they just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, they had advanced, advanced, advanced. Um, but conquering people is good business, but maintaining borders is very costly. Anyway, so uh, it's a very sad point of history, really. Rome fell uh, in uh, the late 400s. And uh, that led to this huge collapse of society. There was not another big culture to replace it. Uh, in the East, they fared far better with um, Alexandria uh, was able to uh, hold its own as a center of, of learning and education. And then also during this time, uh, the Muslim world in the 7th century starting started up, or the 8th century, 700s, I mean. Uh, and they were able to do very well it was a place of, of learning and education there but in the west um, things were very stagnant for a long time uh, until uh, actually the crusades kick-started things back up around the one the um, the first crusade was a thousand and something um, so from the thousands up to i think the 1200s is when the crusades were and uh, this was something that rallied society got people to get working together as a group instead of fighting back and forth. Um, I'm just letting myself go. We'll talk about Descartes in the next podcast. Uh, this is fun. I like history. Um, and so, uh, you know, we think about the, the, the knights and the castles as a positive thing, but really it was a fairly negative thing. Um, all of Europe was divided between these teeny tiny little kings that had to have knights, that had to have a castle, because... They were fighting against the person next door uh, who would try and, and march over and, and burn everything and steal their stuff. Well, you can't advance very much as a society um, when you're killing each other all the time. Uh, and so the Crusades brought this unity to Europe that, hey, there's a big world out there. Uh, Islam is, you know, um, in a few hundred years, they conquered, huge, I think, two-thirds of the Christian world of the former Roman Empire got conquered within a few hundred years. And so the West realized, you know, if we don't stand together, we're going to get conquered by, you know, the Ottoman Empire and by, um, by Islam. And so they started standing together. Uh, they thought more consciously about having the emperor, that position, having more importance, the pope having more importance, um, but mostly just working together, uh, stopping to fight so much. Um, and also uh, channeling all their resources into uh, these crusades actually created a fair bit of wealth 
Um, it's a funny thing that uh, wars are the worst thing, but also the best thing that can happen for an economy. It's World War II is how we got out of the, the Great Depression. Um, I don't know if you know that, but um, yeah, if you, if you focus your economy on war, uh, you're creating a goods and services, and everybody's got a job. Uh, might not be a great job, but everybody's got a job. Anyways, uh, another thing that the Crusades did, uh, I mean, other than being a blot on history and being terrible, of course, um, is that it brought the West in contact with the Muslim world. And the Muslim world throughout the Dark Ages was not dark. Uh, they were very, um, that was the zenith of the, the Muslim world. Um, and for a while, believe it or not, they were very scientifically minded, uh, very forward thinking. And there was kind of a liberal thought that was very strong within Islam and a conservative side that was also very strong. Um, but the liberal side had had a lot of freedom, a lot more freedom than they do now. Um, a lot of freedom to study, a lot of freedom to study philosophy, to, to challenge, um, you know, conservative ideas about um, the world and how things should be. And these people had Aristotle, and Aristotle was kind of their main philosopher, whereas in the East or in the West, um, well, for one thing, we had lost touch of most of the primary sources. Um, you know, people weren't reading Plato and Aristotle. Um, some people were reading Plotinus, but he was like a watered-down version. And most people were just reading parts of Augustine. But even Augustine, they wouldn't have his whole book because it was too expensive. Um, and people didn't have access to libraries. They would just have snippets of Augustine. So it was a very weak, watered-down sort of a philosophy that people had in the West. Whereas in the East, they had the whole books of, of Aristotle that they were working with. Something else that, that plays into this is that um, the great masters wrote in Greek. And so um, this was hard for the West because they spoke Latin. But in the East, um, it's a Greek-speaking. They still speak Greek in uh, much of the West, or the East, I should say. Um, and so there was access to these great masters. And so through the Crusades, people were able to find these people. Um, and, uh, and actually through the Crusades, they realized, hey, there's better universities in the Muslim world than there is in the West. And so people started making, making the trek out to the Muslim world to go to university and then coming back. Um, and obviously this created all sorts of problems for, you know, today people study at secular universities and try and come back and, and they're wrestling with their faith. Um, but there was this studying under Islam and coming back and, and wanting to teach. Um, but they're confused with between Islam and Christianity, but also between um, these new ideas with Aristotle versus cherished beliefs uh, with Platonism. So this came to a head at a certain point um, with um, the teachings of Averroes. Now, Averroes was a Muslim teacher, uh, and he, I have a podcast on this as well, um, but the bottom line about Averroes, which is, came out more through his disciples than through himself, is that, um, hey buddy, you don't like talking about Averroes? Come here, take a soother, it'll make you feel better. Averroes believed in double truth, that 
he thought that something could be true in philosophy, but not true um, in theology. That there's kind of this relativism between theology and philosophy. And the big question for them was um, the age of the earth, as it is for us as well. Um, some things just don't go away as questions. Um, all right, so let's see if we can keep going. Um, I'm just pacing here. Mic is different. I think it might be a little louder in your ear, maybe a little clearer. We'll see if the little guy lets us finish this. So um, the problem that Thomas Aquinas saw uh, in the 12th century was that um, basically Aristotle, um, his system was airtight. This was an excellent way to look at philosophy. And in so doing, it was an excellent way to look at the world, um, which enabled science to work. Um, and this was... And this was going to make science work. This was going to cause the Renaissance, which was going to lead into the Reformation, which was going to lead into um, the industrial or the scientific and industrial revolution and the Enlightenment and all the good things that lead to, you know, the West in the 1800s having steamboats and the rest of the world still having, you know, basic swords and horses and things like that. Um, <clears throat> So Aristotle, or Thomas Aquinas saw this, that Aristotle is good. Uh, we need this. We need to be able to look at the world and understand it. Um, but it's basically incompatible with theism, with Christianity, or with Islam. Um, and so he set about to do a very ambitious project, which was to um, bring these two together and... Most would say that he basically successfully did that. <clears throat> that he made Christianity and Aristotle fit together. So that now there's a way to think of Christianity through the lens of Aristotle and to think of Aristotle through the lens of Christianity. And this, um, he wrote a book called Summa Theologica, which was supposed to be his kind of um, introduction book to uh, theology for the absolute beginner and goodness it is hard to read um, but similar to Aquinas or to Aristotle uh, he wrote a textbook and so it's hard for people like me uh, to understand but the really advanced people really appreciate it because it's very 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 detailed um, and very very um, Elaborate and answers really all the questions that uh, could be raised about his system. So <clears throat> he creates this system uh, that lays the foundation for um, the Renaissance period uh, when people started um, profiting, like they had more time, they had more money due to things that happened during the Crusades. Now they had a better way of thinking about the world. Um, which didn't challenge their faith anymore. Um, and it led to tremendous growth in all the sciences, uh, as well as the arts. You know, you have the Sistine Chapel, and you have Michelangelo, and um, you have, uh, you know, the Renaissance men. Um, you know, you have Da Vinci, you have all this stuff happening. 
basically because of Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle. I mean, not not only that, you could say, well, what would what would have happened if it hadn't been for him? Well, I mean, maybe some of these things still would have happened. There was political reasons and social reasons, um, <clears throat> but I really believe that a big part of why societies flourish is because they have a coherent worldview, and finally they had a coherent worldview. Um, and so this led up through, um, you know, the um, Thomas Aquinas was in the 1200s, and then the 1300s was the Renaissance, 1400s as well, 1500s was the Reformation. So in between these two, you had Duns Scotus, who was um, somebody that was able to take up what Thomas Aquinas said and develop it further and um, and in so doing um, and sorry I'm just getting distracted here um, pause this again um, under Dunscotus uh, it got more and more complicated now Neoplatonism as I talked about in a, in a paper and podcast a while back um, is basically for three components you have the one and then you have mind and then you have soul um, and this explains reality these three components but in between these there's you know all these subcategories and, and different things and it gets pretty complicated so for Thomas Aquinas just for you to know something for you to look at an object see it and know it there's a, a some would say a 10-step process and some would say a 12-step process because there's the material object, there's the object which acts in being and then it impacts your senses and then the senses create this phantasm and then the phantasm is read by the active intellect and then the active intellect perceives it and then your mind judges that this is what it sees and then it makes rational decisions about what it sees and this is really, really, really complex system. And so, and there's all these debates and discussions. And within, um, within Thomism, within the study of Thomas Aquinas, there's going to be all sorts of debates for each one of these steps. Um, you know, I, I don't know how to get into it without getting into it, but you can imagine for each of these steps, there's going to be philosophers that'll say, well, it's, it's this way, it's not that way. Um, step number five actually melds into step number six, or you know we can draw this division here, or bring these two concepts together there, and so it becomes this real hair-splitting um, enterprise within Thomism, um, which is where um, Erasmus, in the who was an academic, a, a great academic uh, just before the Reformation in the 1400s, um, accused the previous philosophers of arguing about how many angels could dance on the head of a pin, you know, like these sorts of useless discussions about these hair-splitting distinctions. Um, and uh, so there was this kind of this huge cultural turning away uh, from from this. And I'm not sure exactly when that happened. I just know that it happened um, for two reasons. For one, um, when you say the word dunce, you think of an idiot and you you think of somebody sitting in the corner with a dunce cap on their head i don't know if if people still think of that but um yeah i mean it's 
the dunce cap is a very old thing. I'm not sure if people talk about that anymore, but you used to sit like a hundred years ago. If you were really um, misbehaved in school, you would literally sit in the corner and they would put a, a hat on your head, a tall um, cone that said dunce on it to shame you into, um, you know, doing better. And the word dunce comes from dunscotus um, because basically um, society or a bunch of people said, look, dunscotus and this whole Thomism, this whole idea is just so complex. We need to just throw the whole thing out. Um, as well, Occam came after Dunscotus, and this was another brilliant philosopher. Um, and this is leading up to the time of the Reformation. And he said, uh, I mean, he's famous for Occam's razor. Um, and he said, look, we shouldn't, um, I don't have the precise definition in front of me, but basically, like, let's not make things more complicated than they have to. The simplest explanation is probably the best one. So this whole 10-step process plus 30 clarifications plus 100 debates plus, 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 you know, it's too complicated. Let's just boil it down to something simpler. And so uh, Occam didn't really come up with something simpler, but um, it kind of laid the foundation, as far as I can see, for uh, Descartes coming in the 1600s. So, um, interesting question. Were the Reformers uh, Thomists, or were, were they interested more in Augustine? Most of the Reformers were um, very, very familiar with Augustine. Uh, the Reformation was basically built out of Augustine's thought. Augustine, of course, from the 4th century, but many of his ideas had been buried over time um, during the time of prosperity and and literacy uh, in the 14-1500s. People rediscovered Augustine, rediscovered the Bible in its original, um, in the original Greek. They learned to read Greek uh, and learned to read the great masters of old uh, and the Bible itself. And um, all these things led to, um, you know, the Reformation, obviously. Um, and I've always thought that the Reformers were um, idealists uh, following Augustine, uh, who was influenced by Neoplatonism and Plato. Um, somebody just recommended that I read a book about um, something like the, the Thomistic foundations of the Reformation that maybe uh, these reformers were more influenced by Thomas Aquinas than I had previously thought, which is an interesting idea uh, because us Protestants tend to think, well, Thomas Aquinas is the, a Catholic thing and we, you know, don't, don't do that. We, uh, and many people think that Protestants just use the Bible, don't use any philosophy, which is false. We do use, um, you know, we do use a form of Platonic philosophy, most of us, uh, that ideas exist in the mind of God and we're created in God's image, therefore we have ideas within us. And that's how we understand the world. We might not express it exactly like that, but if you, if you ask enough questions, you'll find out that that's what most people, most Christians in the West, Protestant Christians, believe, which is a Protestant, uh, which is a, um, an idealist idea. Um, so moving past the Reformation, there's a few questions there that I'd like to have answered at some point. Um, we get to Rene Descartes. 
um, and he's this Catholic guy. Um, but during the time before Catholicism had really become solidified into um, in, into post-Reformation Catholicism, I see Catholicism before the Reformation as being both worse and better than it has been um, in this time because uh, it was worse because there were so many more abuses, so many, so much more corruption. Um, but better in that there was freedom uh, for individual thinkers to think various things, to propose original ideas. Um, and in some places, this led to um, some really great church fathers, some really great uh, thinkers and uh, monks and nuns and, and missionaries that, that throughout the Dark Ages were really bright lights. Um, but after the Reformation, there's what's sometimes called the Counter-Reformation or the Catholic Reformation, which culminated in the doctrine of the Council of Trent, which was a three-stage council in which they solidified Catholic doctrine in reaction to um, Protestant doctrines. And so, and I know I'm, there's at least one Catholic friend I know that will be listening to this, and I'm sure he has a different take on what happened so you can you can set me straight later, Thomas, if you'd like. But um, you know, from my studying of it, it seems as though it was a reaction, and I say it's a reaction because it's explicitly written within the doctrine of Trent. Uh, this is what we believe, uh, or the you know the Anabaptists say this, but we say this. The reformers say this, but we say this. It's explicitly saying we believe these things in opposition to the Reforma Reformation. Um, both the magisterial and the radical reformation. Um, but I still would say that René Descartes, René Descartes was um, in the time when things were a little bit more open and fluid and he was able to uh, express his beliefs. And uh, his, his motivation was he was seeing, as far as I can tell, his motivation was that he was seeing secularism starting to rise as people were getting more and more interested in science for science sake and not just science uh, to explain the world that God had made as it had been for many hundreds of years. Um, and so he was looking for a foundation for belief that was solid enough that um, no skeptic, skeptic could doubt it because this is really what he was afraid of was this radical sort of um, relativism and skepticism that actually has pervaded today that if you ask the average person on the street what is truth, they'll probably say there is no truth or your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. Um, and this starts with ethics and religion. But if you push somebody hard enough and far enough and ask enough questions, most people will say, well, really, there is no truth. It's just your perspective versus my perspective. Even an apple, I mean, I might say it's red, but who knows if my eyes are messed up and when I see red, what I'm really seeing is yellow. I mean, I don't have any way of verifying my sense perception. Um, all we have is my perspective versus your perspective. Um, and this is really what Descartes was trying to avoid, but he ended up creating it in his own way because he said, um, and let's look at our time here. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, 
you know what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to zoom past Descartes and then we're going to have a second podcast where we're going to talk about him more specifically. But basically what Descartes said is we need a foundation that nobody can doubt. So in mathematics, 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's intuitively correct. It's You can verify it. Nobody can doubt it. No matter how crazy you are, you can't come up with a system in which you could doubt that. So he said, I want something like that as the starting point for philosophy. And so he said, and he's got this famous um, book called Discourses or something. I forget. It's famous, but I forget what it's called. Um, he locked himself in a French oven, so the story goes, um, kind of had a sensory deprivation experiment. And he just meditated for a while about how he could start philosophy. And he realized that starting with sense perception was not going to get him there. He said, well, what about dreams? You know, I might think that this is a red apple in front of me, but I've had dreams where I thought it was real, but then I woke up and it wasn't real. So how do I know that this apple is not a dream? And he said, well, you know, you can tell what's true and false because you wake up. And so, um, so I can be relatively sure that it's not a dream because I know what dreams are because I've woken up from them. Okay, well, what about um, other sorts of sense, um, other sorts of errors in sense perception? For example, a stick, when you put it in water, it looks bent if you have a glass of water and you look at it from a certain angle or a paddle going into the water. Um, And he said, so there our senses can deceive us again. We think it's bent, but it's not. But we can verify that with further sense perception. But what about, and here's where he goes um, overboard, but it, it's essential for his system. He says, what if it's possible that there was an evil demon out there? Um, so he's, you know, this is before technology really took off. But nowadays we would tend to think right away of the movie The Matrix. You know, what if we're in The Matrix? And all of our sense perception is funneled through a deceptive system where we're not actually, what we are seeing, what, like, all of our senses come through electrical impulses, right? So those electrical impulses could be hijacked somehow and we could be fed false information. What about that? And so his way of saying that was, what if there's an evil demon out there? And sometimes people will change that to an evil genius um, to kind of empty it of its theological uh, component. But what if there was an evil demon out there? Um, what if God were an evil demon that were that was um, deceiving us? That when we when I thought I saw a red apple, really I was seeing something else, uh, a rock. And when I thought I was eating the red apple. I wasn't actually enjoying it. I was actually destroying my teeth or something. Or what if the whole world is this big illusion and really I I see and feel nothing? And so this doubt really to him made him realize that he couldn't actually trust any of his senses because this objection would be able to destroy anything that he could say, well, you know, I know it's a red apple because so-and-so said it was a red apple. Well, how do I know that he's not part of this grand illusion? Well, I know it's a red apple because I remember eating red apples before. Well, how do you know that's not part of 
you weren't deceived before. Well, I know it's a red apple because I've read about it in a book. Well, how do you know that's not part of the grand deception? So, I mean, it just goes complete sci-fi craziness, right? But, um, But for him, it meant that sense perception could not be trusted. But he said, well, I finally realized as he's sitting there in the dark in this French oven, complete dark and silence, and he's thinking about these things, he realized that the one thing he could not doubt was thinking itself. He realized, well, I'm sitting here thinking. I'm sitting here doubting everything. And in order to doubt, there must be somebody here that's doubting. So I must be able to, um, I, I must exist. My mind must exist. And so he said, the one thing I can be absolutely sure of is that I exist as a thinking person who's able to doubt, um, who's able to ask questions. So he came up with cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And then he said, all right, so since I think, since I know that I exist, then certain uh, ideas that I have in my mind must also be true. And so he's thinking of mathematical concepts, but then he starts thinking about things like perfection. And he says, well, perfection is an idea that I know exists. I know a triangle exists, and I can't, I can't, um, I can't say that a triangle does not exist. I mean, just try to imagine a triangle not existing. It, it exists. You can imagine um, a pink-winged elephant not existing. That's easy. But saying a triangle doesn't exist, well, it has to exist. As soon as you say, you know, a, three, a three-sided object in a two-dimensional space, you're thinking of a triangle, and it can't not exist. So there's certain things like that that have to exist. And one of them is perfection. He says perfection has to exist. But in order for perfection to exist, there must be a being that has the attributes of perfection. Um, Because, and so then he starts to say, well, God must exist because I have this idea in my mind of perfection. And for God not to exist, he would not be totally perfect. Um, And so, therefore, God exists. So that's a very rough outline of the ontological argument, which is what he used to prove that God exists. Um, If you're like, that doesn't really make sense to me, um, congratulations, you are with the majority of people since him and since Anselm came up with it in a few hundred years before him. Um, Most people that look at Descartes, okay, so I'll just keep going. So he says, all right, God exists, using the ontological argument, obviously laying it out better than I just did. Um, But then he says, since God exists and he's good, uh, he he shares in in the attribute of perfection, or he is the uh, absolute um, representation of perfection. Therefore, I can't believe that he's an evil genius. I must believe that he um, allows my senses to to perceive reality, a reality that actually exists, um, because I can't believe that he would deceive me. Uh, therefore, the world exists, and I can perceive it. So he gets his he digs his way out of his hole in that way that. I exist, um, and I have. I exist as a thinking person. I have certain ideas in my mind. Again, echoing back to the forms of Platonism, that these ideas or forms exist in my mind. One of those forms is God, um, or is perfection, which leads me to think of God as the as the perfect as the you know most perfect being that could be imagined. Um, and from there, then I think well. I exist and God exists, the things that he has 
created must also exist, my senses must exist, etc. And then we can think about the world. So most people after him uh, said, great job for doubting everything and starting on the foundation of doubt and of the thinking person. Everything else you said was garbage, but we'll take that. Thank you very much. And so um, this has started modern philosophy, and he's rightly called the father of modern philosophy because everything after him built on his foundation of doubting everything except for the thinking person. And so this swung the pendulum hard back to idealism, that we need to start inside the thinking person, uh, find the ideas within him, and then go out to the outer world. Now, the big problem that has plagued uh, modern thought and then postmodern thought uh, for the last, uh, is it 350 years or so, is how do we get from the inside to the outside? So we're really sure that I exist as a thinking person, but how do I get to the place where I can trust the external world? Because Descartes used you know, the ontological argument and the existence of God. Okay, that's fine, but it doesn't really convince a lot of people. Um, so how do we get from the inside to the outside? And this is called the critical question. Um, how do we get from the inside to the outside? Um, from the world of ideas to the world of real things. And basically, um, it hasn't really worked. Um, there's no way that that philosophers have agreed on that, um, that we can get to the external world uh, within philosophy, at least not with, with the level of confidence that Descartes wants. Um, you know, he... He doubts everything so strongly except for his own existence. And then he wants to know everything else with the same level of certainty that he knows that he exists. Um, And it's just not possible to do that. And so some people will say, well, maybe we need to have a lower degree of confidence in what what exists. That's one way of resolving the problem. Or else um, there's a number number of other uh, theories proposed about how to get from the inside to the outside. Uh, let's just skim over a few of those quick. We have um, Kant. Well, I guess we'll just talk about two here. Okay, well, John Locke said that you're born as a tabula rasa, which means a blank slate, and that the world writes on you. So this is a, another question I have that I want to get resolved here is what's the difference between, what's the difference between that, um, which is empiricism, uh, the idea that the world itself writes itself on us. What's the difference between that and Thomas Aquinas? I'm not really sure. It sounds really similar to me. Um, But more in the Western stream is Immanuel Kant, uh, who is also called the father of modern philosophy, um, confusingly enough. Uh, But he's coming at the end of the Enlightenment age, the 1700s. And uh, he says that um, basically... And it's confusing to understand, but, um, sorry, my kids are having so much fun, it's probably causing a lot of background noise, waking up the kiddo. Stop having so much fun! Right. Um, That we have ideas within us that go out through our senses to organize the world. So this is kind of a return to Platonism that... You know, I have a perfect circle in me, and as I look at a sunflower, the per the the circle within me circles the sunflower. Like it, it orders the world. It it creates order in the world. 
because of the order that's within me. Um, so that might be a radical oversimplification of uh, Immanuel Kant, but that's how I understand him, is that there's order within me that orders the rest of the world. So then we have Victor and Shelley and, and others that, that worked on him. Uh, we have, um, well, Hume came before him. Um, Hegel is another really important kind of benchmark along this journey. And he said basically, look, the internal is all that matters. Ideas are the real. Thoughts are the real. And so um, Hegel is a really confusing guy to understand. Um, he's one of these guys that almost feels deceptive. Like, are you trying to be tricky? Are you trying to confuse me? Um, but it seems as though he's trying to, at the end of the day, lead towards pantheism, that all is God and God is all. Um, kind of back to this New Age sort of a Eastern religion sort of a thing that... Um, yeah, that, that God is part of everything. We're part of God. Um, nature is part of God. Everything's part of God. And ideas are the thing that are really real. Um, and so then Hegel influences Karl Barth um, and others. Um, as this rolls along, uh, there's a lot of people that just really question, like, can we actually know anything about the world? And this is really ironic because this is the time when science is really taking off and is doing these wonderful things, but philosophy is still just kind of floundering like a dead fish on the beach, not able to give a, a real foundation for truth, um, even though the scientific method just continues on. Um, and uh, in the mid-1900s, Jean-Jacques Derda, uh, Jean, Jean-Jacques Derrida, I think in English we usually say Derrida, I have a really hard time pronouncing French words in English now because I know French. never know how to say things, but uh, Derrida said, look, we can't know anything. Um, there, there is no objective truth. Uh, one of his, his pithy sayings is, there is no, n'y a pas de hors texte. There's no such thing as out of context. Um, if, you, if you read something and you understand one truth, and I read something and I get a different truth. There, there is no absolute sense. Even the sense that the author had when they wrote it is not an absolute truth. Sorry about the background noise here. We'll try and block that out a little bit. There is no absolute truth. All we have is your perspective versus my perspective. And if the internal world is our foundation for knowing the world, our, our internal, our thoughts are the only thing that is real. But there's no absolute thought. You know, we used to use God um, as the center of truth. But if we take that out, then all we have is your thoughts versus my thoughts. And we'd have to agree that Derrida is correct, that all we have is relativism. Everything descends down to your opinion versus my opinion. And Plato, of course, tried to do this thing about the world of the forms, but as we saw in previous podcasts, it doesn't really work because your idea of the world of the forms is different than my idea of the world of the forms. Um, and using God as the foundation for philosophy also doesn't work, at least not in a, in a bigger sense, in the sense that the whole world can understand this, because you know the Muslims are going to say, well, God is like this, 
uh, Hindus are going to say God is like this. And so there's, you know, Western thought comes rushing along to this point where there is no, there is no truth. There is no way to, to ground our philosophy. And this has led us to the point where really philosophy is sidelined. Really, people are like, you know what, I'm just going to study f- biology and I don't care about philosophy. I don't, I don't, I don't, they'll say, well, I'm just a Christian and I don't care about philosophy. Um, because philosophy just seems like this huge waste of time where you're spending pages and pages and pages and pages and pages and books and, and journals and all these things to say, basically, I don't know anything. And it's like, well, I could have said that in the beginning, you know. Um, or um, to say, well, full of, I can't know what truth is, but we just need to live our lives anyways. And it's like, well, you know, and that's the pragmatic view uh, in philosophy. And you say, well, I didn't need a doctrine in philosophy to teach me that. Thank you very much. I can, I can see that myself. Uh, the problem isn't... The problem isn't with truth. The problem is with the philosophers, that it seems like philosophy is just this dead end. Um, and so what... Um, what Wilhelmson says, and this is kind of where this was supposed to go, is that the problem here is not with truth. The problem is not with us. It's The problem is with Descartes. And this whole thing of trying to start with a thinking person, um, and I think therefore I am, and the ideas inside myself are the center and start of truth. Uh, and so in the next podcast, we're going to start critiquing and tearing apart De- uh, Descartes to see if we can find a more sure foundation for truth so that um, we can build a solid foundation so that as we go out into the world, yes, we can do science, yes, we can do theology, yes, we can understand how to live our daily lives. But this won't be um, in spite of philosophy. This won't be saying, well, philosophy teaches me nothing, so I need to just throw it out um, and live my life. This will be, can we build a foundation for philosophy in some way that actually makes sense. And that can be a coming together of people from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of uh, walks of life. Um, So that's where we'll go next, uh, talking more about Derrida. So I hope that um, you'll stay tuned for that. Thanks a lot. Bye.